Right, I'm Gillian Peel. I'm Fellow and Tutor in Politics at Lady Margaret Hall. And we're going to be talking about the Thatcher legacy. And I'm Tom Lubbock, Lecturer in Politics at Magdalen College. And I'm going to start by asking Gillian, how did Margaret Thatcher come beat Edward Heath in the Conservative leadership election of 1975? And did the Conservative Party actually know what, what it was in for? Well, I think there are two parts to that question. The first is how did she come to beat Heath? And I think it it was simply because no other member of the cabinet, shadow cabinet, at the time was willing to stand against Heath. And yet she knew that there was an enormous degree of opposition to Heath continuing as leader. People backed her, I think, on the assumption that even if she gave Heath a bloody nose, she would not herself then inherit the crown. But that was a profound miscalculation. So it was an accident, which reflected, in a sense, both the state of the party in the mid-1970s and Mrs Thatcher's own courageous and, perhaps one might say, rather rather uh, risky personality. She knew that she wanted to make a stand. On the second point, did they know what they had let themselves in for? I think almost certainly not. She was a very unknown quantity in British politics. And I think that only after she became leader was the full impact of that change increasingly apparent. OK, let's jump forward to the 1979 general election. What did this election mean for Margaret Thatcher and for the country? What's your interpretation? Well, obviously for Margaret Thatcher it meant a tremendous change. It meant she went from being leader of the opposition to being the first woman prime minister. I think for the country, there are several levels at which one can interpret it, but just take two. One was I think everybody recognised that this was a, a sea change in terms of British policy and the approach to politics. Callaghan, in the 1979 election, recognised that the vibes, if you like, the values of society, the values of the country were shifting away from him and in a Conservative Party's direction. So that there was a sense that this was an intellectual shift as well as an ideological shift as well as a political shift. So it, it was a profound breaking point, I think, with the post-war era. On another level, I think the country entered into a period of debate and divisiveness which was quite unparalleled. Uh, in British post-war history, division between the parties and division within the Conservative Party. Let's look at the next 10 years as a whole before we look at some of the specifics. So Margaret Thatcher is infamous for having an ism appended to her surname. But what meaning can you ascribe to the term Thatcherism? What well, meaning do you give it? Well, it's a very fuzzy concept, but I understand by Thatcherism a very personal blend of ideology and policy, emphasis on free markets, emphasis on capitalism and on entrepreneurialism, a reduction in the role of the state. So a set of ideas about the role of the state and about policy, but blended with a particular style of decision-making and personal presentation and a rhetoric which emphasises common sense, against perhaps intellectual approaches to politics, which has a particular populist stance from time to time, populist kind of ethos. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an amalgam, it's, it's not a precise concept, but I think most people who use the term Thatcherism know what they, they mean by it, and I think it, it has acquired a, a fairly general uh, significance.
we're obviously talking shortly after Margaret Thatcher's death, and a lot of the outpouring of positive feeling has centred on how um, Mrs Thatcher transformed the British economy, and some say saved it. Where would you say we can look to find this Thatcher economic miracle, if at all? Well, I wouldn't have put Mrs Thatcher's great achievement in terms of the economy. I think the record there is much more mixed. Many of the things which we see happening under Mrs Thatcher might have happened under a Labour government. What wouldn't have happened, I think, under a Labour government would have been the changed approach to the trade unions. Uh, I think you wouldn't have had the privatisation of nationalised industries and I think you wouldn't have had the resolute attempt and determination to make Britain great again, to try and arrest decline. Now, on a number of other fronts in relation to the economy, I think, as I say, the record is much more mixed. There's A lot has been made about the destruction, not that this is seen as an achievement of British manufacturing industry, but in fact that's something which had been going on, uh, the decline of British manufacturing industry uh, as a percentage of GDP had been going on since the 1970s, and it's accelerated under Labour since the Conservatives lost power in 19, uh, 1997. So that that's a trend which, although was marked, and she didn't do much to stop it, I don't think that's something that you can really particularly blame her for, although she obviously wasn't particularly sympathetic to declining industry. Inflation, yes, that came down, and that, I suppose, could be seen as a part of, of Thatcher's achievement. The shift to monetarism, well, it was the policy was very stop and start, and in fact, the the policies that were adopted at the beginning of the Thatcherite period were abandoned a little bit later. So, in terms of the economic miracle, I'm not sure that I would would be too sure about that. What what she did do was to create a climate for greater entrepreneurialism, greater dependence on the market. She made Britain much more, I think, fit for competing in a global economy and I think she and this is not necessarily an economic point I think she brought about the end of a period in which the unions could hold society and the political system to ransom so that would be where I would put my emphasis I think the economic message is a little bit more uh, mixed okay let's look at how Thatcher governed first question is I mean, what can we learn about political leadership from Thatcher's example? Well, I always see political leadership in terms of three items. One is, or three elements. One is having an agenda that is clear. The second is communicating that agenda. And the third is being able to mobilise support behind that agenda. Now, there's no doubt whatsoever that clarity was one of her great attributes and that there was no fuzziness, there was no compromise with the status quo, that she had a very clear idea of where she wanted Britain to go, and in most respects a very clear strategic idea about how to get Britain going along the path she wanted. So in terms of strong political leadership, and that becomes quite a quite a, an important feature of political debate in the Thatcher years, particularly after Reagan becomes president and provides something similar in the United States. In terms of strong political leadership, she, it seems to me, encapsulates and epitomises the idea that what a leader should do is to set out in very clear and simple terms the goals and not be very willing to 
compromise. Clarity, I would say, is what she she sets forth. And the emphasis is, is always on Thatcher herself, but she did have a very close group of prominent advisers. What role do you think they played in her success? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think she was dependent upon a very small group of people, most of whom were not, in fact, at least at the beginning, political colleagues, although some of them at the beginning, Geoffrey Howe, for example, were key to her initial success. The backroom boys, and they were mainly boys, were important, and so were advisers who came onto the scene, like Charles Pohl and Alan Waters later. I think I would say two things. One was that she started out in a very isolated position, and that part of what she was doing was having to fight, in a sense, or at least hold her own, with cabinet colleagues who didn't really want her to be there. So she needed a kind of support, a kitchen cabinet, if you like, an inner circle of of advisers who believed in what she was doing. The second point, I think, is that as time went on, and this is something that I've written about recently, I think she came to rely far more on her personal confidence. People like Charles Pohl, Alan Waters, to some extent Bernard Ingham, people who were not in the mainstream of the parliamentary party, in fact, perhaps had very little linkage directly with either the cabinet or the parliamentary party. And in a sense, they insulated her from some of the doubts and criticisms that were inevitably emerging as time went on. Uh, This may be a trait of all long-serving prime ministers, perhaps all long-serving leaders, that they tend to rely on an inner circle and lose the links with the people who actually will keep them in power. And just to sum up this section on leadership and the Prime Minister, did did Thatcher, as has been claimed, actually transform the office? Or is that is that a myth? Is that saying too much? I think she exercised the role of Prime Minister, operated the powers of the Premiership in a very different way from her predecessor. She was much more personal. But again, there are subtle differences within her period in power. At the beginning, I think she used the cabinet much more as an institution than she was to do later. Um, And she showed what strong leadership inside government and inside the cabinet could do. And of course, this is echoed to some extent by Blair uh, as well. But it's not necessarily the case that that change would be continued or will be continued. Neither Brown nor Cameron nor, of course, Major had the capacity or the desire, I think, to um, continue that particular very trenchant and personal style of cabinet government. And it's a style of government which has many, many weaknesses. You you lose the strengths of collective argument, uh, which is one of the great benefits of cabinet government. Let's move on to talk about Thatcher's influence on the Conservative Party. Um, I think this is going to be prescient in the uh, next few weeks. So let's start by considering whether Thatcher was like any Conservative that had come before. (laughs) Well, in one obvious way, she certainly was different in that she was female. And that in itself was a very major shock, I think, for the party. The senior figures in the Parliamentary Party had not been used to dealing with women uh, before. It was very much more of a... Uh, a sort of club uh, at the top of the Conservative Party than it is now even. 
Um, so in that way, she was very different. But she did come, I think, from a very different background. And that's not just a, a social background. Heath's background, if anything, was slightly more modest than Thatcher's. But where the difference was, and I think it's absolutely crucial, is that Heath at Oxford had read PPE. He'd been president of the union. He'd effectively been absorbed into, if you like, the, the mores of the British establishment. Mrs Thatcher always saw herself as an outsider. She was a scientist. She didn't like civil servants and I don't think she particularly liked academics. I think she liked vigorous entrepreneurial business uh, men. And so I think socially and intellectually and culturally, she was much more of an outsider than Heath. But the big difference, of course, as well, was that I think although there'd always been a minority wing in the party which had... Uh, wanted to see a major rollback of the state, didn't really buy the Keynesian settlement of 1944, Keynesian beverage settlement. This was the first time that somebody from that much more free market wing of the party had come to lead it. And I think she brought a very different ideological set of priorities to the party. So socially, culturally, intellectually and ideologically, yes, she rec- she represented a very big difference, very big change. And what about the influence that Thatcher's had on the Conservative Party since leaving office? I think almost entirely undesirable. It seems to me that the Conservative Party, and I'm going to explain this on two or three levels, I mean, I think first of all, there's always been a kind of sense that somehow she was not fairly treated. Some some people in the party, some groups in the party, obviously still feel that the ousting of Thatcher in November 1990 was a major mistake. And so there's been this kind of wound in the party. There's been a a legacy, I think, of overemphasis on economic policy and a neglect to a, a large extent of social policy and a broader grounding of the Conservative Party's philosophy and approach. And I think there's also been, although I think hope that this will perhaps disappear a kind of sense of division within the party a continuation of the is he one of us wets and dries a much more fundamental sense of of there being a a sort of fissure in the party between those who are were thatcherite and those who are not another policy area which seems prescient at the moment which uh, margaret thatcher had many, many dealings in is the area of European integration. Um, It's often hard for my students to pin down exactly what the Thatcherite position was. Is is that, do you think, because there's a contradiction in there or um, was there some change over time? Well, there was change over time. I think the crucial point is that as the integration agenda speeded up, she became more and more hostile to the notion of a European superstate. I think at the beginning, Thatcher, like Heath, saw the benefits of Europe in terms of a free trade area. Uh, it was when the project began to acquire a much more of a political dimension that she became very, very sceptical, very hostile. So I don't see that as a contradiction. I think that in a sense it's a reaction to a changing agenda inside Europe. 
And it's also, I think, uh, underlines the extent to which the British government, when it went into Europe under Edward Heath, in a sense, deceived itself about the long-term nature of the project and deceived, perhaps, the British people about what was really intended further down the line. So there's always been, I think, a, an ambiguity in the British attitude to Europe that, by and large, British governments want a politically shallow but economically effective trading area and they are much less interested in any of the kinds of political dimensions of integration. And to some extent, of course, um, they may be achieve, about to achieve that because of the the broadening of Europe. But I think Mrs Thatcher, who was at bottom very much, uh, probably an English rather than a British uh, nationalist, certainly did not want to see any further incursions on parliamentary sovereignty or on the control of public policy by Europe. And I think she was... Again, going back to the point you raised about how different was Mrs Thatcher from other Conservative leaders, I think I would say she had a much less cosmopolitan background than her predecessors. Heath, Hume, Macmillan, Eden, Churchill, all very versed in foreign affairs, very familiar with Europe. I don't think Mrs Thatcher really thought that uh, Johnny Foreigner was the equal of, of Britain. And I think that she she was very, very sceptical about the European integration project. But it, that only became really apparent later. And of course, it was, again, enormously divisive within the government. Obviously, we're both involved in writing academically, and, and you write on Thatcher. I wonder, do you detect any difference between the academic literature um, which has been produced on Margaret Thatcher um, and the public debate which has been had since her death, do you think that those two are in sync, or do you think there's been a there's been a gap between the two? Well, the academic literature is very varied. I mean, there is there are sort of historical and biographical studies. There is a lot of material uh, in the vein of Andrew Gamble's book um, on the free economy and the strong state. Uh, that vein really sees Thatcherism as a project, sees it in a sense as having an intellectual and ideological agenda and builds on kind of almost Marxist foundations. And there's been a more, perhaps a more open-ended political science literature that's looked at Thatcherism as part of the analysis of the Conservative Party, books like Tim Bale's book. So I don't think the academic literature is all of a piece, but I think I think they're not in sync to the extent that, that the popular debate about Thatcherism is, is looking at her legacy, is looking at what difference she made, where where she made a difference to housing policy, welfare, the economy, the Falklands, whatever it happens to be. And I think the intellectual literature is trying to, of course it's interested in personality and leadership, but it, it is also trying to contextualise it to a large extent to see how far... Uh, we can see Thatcher as part of a, a more general um, political process. So there's overlap. They're not in complete sync. There's overlap. Um, and in that context, I wonder, what would you recommend to listeners who haven't read much, perhaps, on Thatcherism? What work would you suggest they, they dip into? Well, we're all looking forward, I'm sure, to reading the first volume of Charles Moore's authorised posthumous biography, which is going to come out, I think, next week as soon as the funeral is over but other than that I think 
Mrs. Thatcher's own two-volume autobiography repays dipping into. It's very long, of course, but equally, although I don't always agree with it, there is, I think, a very good biography by John Campbell, two-volume biography of Mrs. Thatcher, which is particularly interesting, I think, on, on the background, to her, her family background, and the way in which Mrs. Thatcher constructed a narrative of her own rags to riches ascent and her, the relationship with her family. But there is a massive literature, and it depends what you're interested in and where you're, you, you're coming from. Gillian Peel, thank you very much.